Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello there, everyone. Judge Napolitano here with Judging Freedom. And my guest today, Professor Patrick Newman. Professor Newman is a professor at Florida Southern College. He's also a colleague of mine at the Mises University, Mises Institute. And he's a fellow New Jerseyan, and he's a good friend. He's a gifted and brilliant economist who has also written gifted and brilliant historical works. His most recent is called Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849. Patrick, welcome uh, to Judging Freedom. Thanks a lot for having me on, Judge. I'm uh, really excited to be talking about my book, and I couldn't be more happy to be talking about it with you. Okay. Well, you know I've read the book because I I was privileged to be one of your readers, and it's right up my alley. But what, in a nutshell, is cronyism? So cronyism uh, refers to policies that benefit special interests and political and financial elites at the taxpayer's expense. So it's not policies that benefit the public interest, though they're often advocated in terms of that, but it's redistributions uh, that take money away from taxpayers to uh, you know, well-connected politicians and businessmen. And what kind of cronyism developed in the early uh, eight uh, stages of the country? I mean, you, you start... In 1607, I don't think the Pilgrims had even arrived yet. What was there this type of corrupt with lowercase c interaction between ordinary people and the and the government so that that select groups were favored at the expense of the ordinary people? Uh, <clears throat> absolutely. Un- un- unfortunately, the the colonies were really created to be extensions or to facilitate British cronyism. So mercantilism, feudalism, and even absolutism, the uh, England and then later Great Britain had designed the colonies to basically be these raw export markets that would operate under a variety of regulations that privileged British manufacturers and shippers. But as Americans, we resisted that and we, of course, revolted. We seceded from Great Britain in the Revolutionary War. But even during that time, you started to see the development of American cronies, most notably Robert Morris, the noted financier of the Civil War. Uh, excuse yeah, me, well, of the tell, Revolutionary tell me about War. tell me about Robert Morris's cronyism. What, what sure. did he do? What did he do that harmed the average colonist? And how did he do it? Sure. So what Robert Morris did was he uh, first was head of uh, important various committees relating to war financing and the distribution of war contracts. So he always managed to siphon those contracts to his own firm as well as other firms, clearly benefiting himself. 
And most notably, he was um, very important, uh, you know, uh, uh, promising in getting the our country's first central bank created, really a proto-central bank, the Bank of North America, which was given this big monopoly charter by the uh, Congress. So basically, Morris's bank was given a monopoly and other banks couldn't compete. So we were already creating uh, a very large sort of banking oligarchy that would benefit from the government, hurting the average person who wouldn't be able to acquire financial facilities and, and so on. I'm kind of interested in what he did with respect to war material. I mean, would this be akin to someone in the Defense Department directing federal assets to purchase military equipment from a company that this person in the Defense Department owned or had a substantial financial interest in. Absolutely. That's a that's a great modern example of what Morris did. And that, that that's it drew a lot of uh, a lot of criticism because Robert Morris was basically steering defense contracts, although they weren't called that during the Revolutionary War, to himself into his firm, Willing and Morris, as well as other financial um, uh, firms he was related with. And of course, the head of the Bank of North America, the president, was his own investment par partner, uh, Thomas Willing. So it, it's very clear that he's, he has a cozy relate. He had a cozy relationship uh, during the, with, with the government during the Revolutionary War and after that he used in order to benefit himself. Uh, now, where where were where were the giants of that era on this? Where was Washington on this? Where was our buddy Thomas Jefferson? What, where was Hamilton, other than probably <laughs> wanting to participate in it? Forgive my chip on my shoulder about Hamilton, but but was this generally known that it was happening? And did any of the revolutionaries who believe that your property is your own rebel at this? Well, so uh, uh, Washington was sort of affiliated with Robert Morris at this time, and Hamilton was working with Washington, and Hamilton became very close with Morris. So <laughs> those guys are kind of out. Um, <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson and others, I think they, they, they knew about this, as did James Madison. They knew that Robert Morris was, was benefiting, but Robert Morris was always able to argue it in the name of the public interest by saying, oh, this is what we have to do to uh, you know, facilitate the war effort. Everything's in the public interest. My companies, they're the only ones who can do this, et cetera, that you know, it's not convincing in hindsight, but of course he can use a crisis emergency to increase power for himself. Okay, so the American Revolutionary War is over. We won it. The War of 1812 is over. Who knows if we won it, but we know the British uh, went home. James Madison, who resisted the first national bank of the United States and did so in one of the greatest speeches in the history of the country, known as the bank speech, was persuaded to change his mind. And at the tail end of his second term uh, as president, he signs into law the second national bank of the United States. What does that do for cronyism? Well, <clears throat> the second uh, bank of the United States, much like Hamilton's first bank, was a great illustration of cronyism. The, the interests behind the second bank of the United States were wealthy Philadelphia merchants um, <clears throat> and businessmen, notably John Jacob Astor and Stephen Gerard. So what they wanted to do is they had bought a lot of depreciated government securities during the War of 1812, and they wanted to make those government securities uh, exchangeable for bank stock much like what happened with the First Bank of the United States. So this would increase the demand for their financial investments and allow them to make a huge windfall gain. 
So they pushed this bank through, the second uh, bank of the United States, through Congress. And once the bank opens, there's a tremendous amount of cronyism. The Baltimore branch in particular is illegally lending themselves money. This bank generates an enormous speculative boom that leads to the Panic of 1819, ruining everyone but the bank, which led William Gouge, a famous economist, to famously state at the time the bank was saved and the people were, were ruined. All right. Now, you, you are an economist by trade, even though you are a pretty good historian. Take us beyond 1849. Take us where, where, where your book ends. Take us beyond the Civil War. Bring us up into the 20th century. Is it fair to say that by the time of the institution of the Federal Reserve, the federal income tax, the administrative state, World War I, all those awful things that happened in the progressive era about which you have also written, that cronyism was indelibly American and almost accepted as normal. Absolutely. So by this time period, cronyism was firmly established. The supremacy of the federal government was established over the states, and you had various financial interests that had a commanding influence in the economy. So at the time of the Federal Reserve in World War I, this was J.P. Morgan. Uh, and of, of J.P. Morgan and Company. It's no surprise that the investment bank pushed for the Federal Reserve, and the investment bank was also an enthusiastic proponent of getting the United States to be involved in World War I because it was the major underwriter of British and French bonds uh, in America and had supplied many munitions contracts for them. So cronyism was firmly established, and really the 20th century is just a brilliant illustration time and time again of how political and financial elites have plundered the general taxpayer. Is this hopeless <laughs> or is it going to take another revolution to, to get the leeches of cronyism off the skin of Liberty? How'd you like that line, by the way, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm already, I immediately have to look at my, <clears throat> my forearms to make sure if there's any leeches on me. So uh, that, that, was, that was a great line. Very, very vivid. Um, is it hopeless? I, of course, don't want to be pessimistic, but I would say the, the, you know, it, it's looking quite bleak. I think the only way to reform the system is to separate this from the system. You can't reform D.C. We tried to do it in the past. It's, it's unreformable. I think promoting more uh, states' rights and local, local <clears throat> governance is the solution. Uh, potentially, you know, um, you know some, some sort of states' right movement to secession, various forms of nullification, um, you know, break states breaking away, joining other states. I think that's the only sort of solution uh, because previous attempts have just not worked. Got it. Got it. Um, I guess we're kind of stuck with this. I mean, what? Let me take you to your uh, your crystal ball. Where's the federal government going to be in ten years? It can't pay its bills today. You think a time is going to come when it will just collapse of its own weight? No one will lend it money. No one will want to use its worthless fiat cash. 
uh, that's that's a that's a great question. I, I I think that day could come, though. I think the federal government will go cook, kicking and screaming. No one might want to use its money, but they can certainly keep the printing press up, and they'll be able to convince a number of citizens, unfortunately, to use their money. I think they'll definitely try and crack down on alternate currencies or prevent various states' rights um, uh, reforms from 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 getting underway. But it's not looking good. We've got a lot of entitlements. The bills uh, have to be paid. The population is aging. Uh, you're seeing more and more proposals for worldwide cronyism, a, a minimum corporate income tax. I think you're going to see wealth taxes, and those will start at the richest Americans, but much like income taxes, they'll be spread to everyone, and eventually the wealthy will be able to avoid those, et cetera. So it's it's not looking good. The, the government, there's a lot of issues that need to be reformed, and it doesn't look like politicians in D.C. are going to do anything about it. Patrick Newman, uh, the book is Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849. I am a rare book reviewer who has actually read every page of the book, and it's terrific. So I encourage you to get it. Patrick, it's always a pleasure. I hope we see each other uh, before the summer in Alabama. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Okay, all the best. Okay.